Well, Jimmy, thank you for uh, that encouraging worship service. Uh, we've, you know, I did uh, music in church for uh, a number of years, and I would hear people explain that the job of the worship pastor or music minister or music guy, whatever, is to lead us into the throne, into the presence of God. And I'm thinking, man, that's way above my pay grade. I can't do that. <laughs> but uh, we can sing truths about God, and we can worship, and we can be encouraged by the truths that we sing. And so thank you, brother. It's encouraging. All right, so... Today, we want to talk about prayer from 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. So if you would like to look that up, you know how I am. I try not to prove, I try not to say things that I can't prove from Scripture. So we tend to look up a lot of things. But our main text will be 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. All right, let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you know why Donald J. Trump is the president of the United States? Somebody tell me. That's right. (laughs) We voted for him. Somebody voted for him. He won an electoral college majority, right? That's why he's president. Also, he is president because our sovereign God ordained that he be president. Now, do you know why his predecessor, Barack Obama, was president? Well, the same reason. He won an electoral college majority. And the same reason our sovereign God ordained that he be president. Okay? Nothing is out of the reach, out of the scope, out of the purview of our sovereign, that's what that word means, sovereign God. Now, we're going to be instructed to pray for those in positions of power. Now, if you're like, well, every other American, you probably prefer one of those two guys I just mentioned over the other guy that I just mentioned, right? So... We're not just supposed to pray for the ones we like. We are supposed to pray for our leaders. Not just the ones we voted for, but all of those that have a large impact on our daily lives and the daily lives of our neighbors. Guys, if we're going to love our neighbors, then we need to pray for our leaders that have an impact on the daily lives of those neighbors. There's something a bit challenging in this text that we need to think through together. Verse 4 tells us that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, that sounds great. The reason that we have to think through it is that God is omnipotent and he is sovereign and he gets what he wants, period, okay? So we could just gloss over that and make sure that nobody gets offended by the possible explanations. Or we can take a look at why, if God wants everybody to be saved, everybody's not saved. I mean, there has to be some wrestling with that. 
Otherwise, we'll change the name to the West Laurel, uh, you know, oneness, everybody saved. Uh, I don't know what you call them. <laughs> if what now? Universalist, yeah. We'll have to change our name to the Universalist Church because we know that Scripture is clear that not everybody is saved. But then we see that Scripture clearly says it's God's will that everybody be saved. So again, we've got to do a little bit of hard work, a little bit of hard thinking in order to see how that fits together. Now, some people get mad when you think hard because they say you're just supposed to read the plain meaning of Scripture. Well, yes, of course you're supposed to read the plain meaning of Scripture. But if the plain meaning of Scripture leads you to think that everybody gets saved and you look in other parts of Scripture and you realize that's clearly not true, then obviously a thinking person has to do the work of thinking through that. So we're going to do that. It's the, it's the more difficult uh, path, but it's the more profitable path. So we're going to do that together today. The first thing I want you to see is that we are to pray in verses 1 and 2. We're to pray for all people. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So, guys, we need to pray for all people. Pray that we know, pray for people we know, Pray for people we don't know. Pray for people that are looking like us. Pray for people that don't look like us. Pray for people that vote like us. Pray for people that don't vote like us. We are to pray for all people. We are to pray for Republicans. We are to pray for Democrats, Christians, Jews, Muslims, and every other religion. We are to pray for all people. Now, I don't pray the same way for all those people. My main prayer for the lost is that they be saved, right? Because that is clearly their greatest need. So people that are not in the faith, my number one prayer for them is that they will come to the knowledge of the truth. I pray primarily for the salvation of non-Christians. But because we are to love our neighbors, I pray for the peace and well-being of all folks. Now, I probably don't do this as much as I should, but let's look. In Matthew five forty three through 47, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So, Christ tells us we are to pray for everyone, even those who persecute us, right? And that's not easy to do. That takes a love instilled by the Holy Spirit to do that. Now, I really, like I said, don't pray for everyone as much as I ought to because I pray for my family, I pray for my church, and I pray in general terms for our leaders and all this. But I think I want to improve on this with you as we learn to pray for all people. Then I want us to see where to specifically pray for our rulers. Now, Paul probably wrote this under the reign of Nero, 
who was one of the most evil, demon-possessed individuals to ever walk the earth. Uh, I shared with Melissa some stuff about Nero that I didn't want to bring up in here because it would literally nauseate you. This guy was as sick and freakish and perverse as, as you can imagine, and probably more than you can imagine, and you probably don't want to hear the details. Nero was the ruler of Rome when it burned in the first century. Uh, the Christians were blamed for setting this fire, and persecution then ramped up like crazy because Nero blamed the Christians for setting the fire. I'm going to quote to you from the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary. It says, people knew that he, and he being Nero, planned to build a much larger palace for himself, and they reasoned that if he used the fire, that he used the fire to clear off the land so that he could build that bigger palace structure. Nero felt the need to divert suspicion to another group. He selected the Christians as his scapegoats. He claimed that they had set the fire. A systematic persecution of the Christians followed because of his lifestyle, and again, I won't tell you the details there, and the persecution, many Christians viewed him as the Antichrist, all right? So this dude was bad. Now, many of, uh, you know, a lot of people in the early church thought that this guy was the Antichrist. I mean, that's how bad he was. I'm not really a fan of some of our politicians, okay? I'm, I really dislike the positions of some of our politicians, but I don't think that any of them is the Antichrist. As much as you may not like some folks in politics in our country, they are not as bad as Nero. And so if Paul can write under the reign of Nero that we're supposed to pray for our rulers, then you can pray for fill in the blank that you don't like. Now, how should we pray for our rulers? Um, I've heard people pray in a way for our rulers that is kind of, you know, Lord, uh, kill him and get him out of office. And that's, that's not how we're supposed to pray. We should pray for their salvation if they're not saved. We should pray for their salvation. We should pray uh, for wisdom. They need wisdom as they rule, as they uh, establish our laws, as they enforce our laws. They desperately need wisdom. And God is quick to answer that when people come to him and ask for wisdom. So they may not have the wisdom to ask for wisdom, but we can ask for wisdom on their behalf. We need to pray that they will uphold the law. Now, you guys know, 30 years ago, uh, Democrats and Republicans may have had a different idea on social issues. They may have had different ideas on economic issues, but they didn't decide that we needed to just not uphold the law. But now we have congressmen and senators who think we don't need to uphold the law. So let's pray for them that they will have the sense to uphold the law because that's what keeps our society working, right? And keep the peace. Again, that used to be a non-partisan thing. We all had enough sense to know we needed to keep the peace. Now, not so much. So let's pray for our rulers to know that we need to keep the peace and that they would be able to, uh, to accomplish that. Now, I regularly pray that anti-God influences would be removed from power. I think and I hope that this is a prayer that pleases God. Sometimes when I pray for specific individuals, I pray that they would be either gloriously saved or removed from all power and influence. Now, I leave the details of what that removal would look like completely to God. Um, obviously, I don't need to instruct God on how to do his job. I just pray that they would be removed from influence. Um, but you don't have to do that in a way that, you know, you're praying for someone's death. 
I can pray for a more conservative Supreme Court justice to be appointed without praying for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to die. You know what I'm saying? So we can pray in a way that is God-honoring and that is not um, ugly. We can pray in a way that pleases God. We can say, Lord, would you remove the influence of this person? We're not praying for their death. We don't want the... We don't want harm to come on people. We want salvation to come to people, right? Much the opposite of harm. We want good to come to them. But if the Lord has somebody in power that is working against the church and against God, we pray for their removal and their lack of influence. Next thing is we need to pray for peace. When a Christian is able to, as the scripture said a few minutes ago, lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, then the gospel can be lived out and proclaimed openly, right? We need to pray for those circumstances. But guys, then when we have those circumstances, and we're so blessed right now to have those circumstances, we need to not be complacent. It's, it's not against the law in our country to go share the gospel. So we need to be sharing the gospel. Because I think you can imagine a day real soon where that might be hate speech and might be illegal, right? Let's make hay while the sun shines. Let's take advantage of the prosperity that God has given us right now because he can and may take that away. Next big thing is I want us to see the theological motivations for these prayers in verses 3 through 6. Verses 3 through 6 read this way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We pray because God desires the salvation of all people. I say that without, um, without hesitation, but now we need to think about why the Bible says God desires the salvation of all people, and yet we know from the rest of Scripture that not everyone's saved. It does not mean that everyone is saved. So we want to establish that God is not saying, hey, I want everybody to be saved, so everybody's going to be saved. It'll all work out in the end. Um, that is not what Scripture teaches. And there are dozens of Scriptures that I could show you that, don't, that, that would disprove that theory, but I'll go to one of them, which is Matthew seven twenty-one to 23, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. All right, so we see the problem, right? God wants everybody to be saved, not everybody's saved. So I think there are two possible explanations for this. One is that there is a power in the universe that is able to thwart the will of God. It's a dualism kind of thing. Um, That thinking goes something like this. And this is what I see presented in Hollywood most of the time. So uh, people may really have this understanding. And if you've grown up in church, I'm sure you don't. But I think it's worth addressing because in our society, I believe a lot of people do think this way. They think God wants us. Satan wants us. Sometimes God wins. 
Sometimes Satan wins, right? It's a cosmic duel. It's a wrestle between two basically equal forces. Well, that is not the biblical concept of God at all. I didn't want to take the time in this sermon to flesh out all the reasons why that's a biblical mis- where the- why that's an unbiblical understanding. Um, but I'll give you one example. In, in Job, we see that God says to Satan, hey, have you considered my servant Job? And he says, well, he only serves you because you protect him. Okay, so we learn there that God protects Job and Satan can't lay a finger on him unless God gives him permission. And then God says, okay, uh, take away his stuff. And so Satan takes away all his stuff because God told him he could. And God also says, but don't hurt him. So you know what Satan can do? Exactly what he's told. (laughs) He's got a chain that is so long and he can run to the end of that chain and he can bark all he wants. But God's chain keeps him exactly where he's supposed to be. And then later, God says, okay, you can touch him, but don't kill him. And so then Satan wreaks havoc with his health, but he can't kill him because God said not to. So see, that is not a concept of dualism. That is a God is God and Satan is a creature. He's a big, tough, powerful creature, but he's a creature. So there is no comparing the power and might of these two. All right. So we cannot learn from this passage that there is possibly any power in the universe that can thwart the will of God. All right, so let's look at the other possibility. The other possibility is that God chooses not to save everyone because of a competing goodness within God. Now let me explain what that means. You know that we, we can want two things, right, at the same time that can't both happen. I think all of us would like extra income, okay? I could make extra income by cooking and distributing meth, okay? But I don't want to harm people, and I don't want to go to jail. So my desire to make extra income is hampered (laughs) and overruled by my desire not to harm people and go to jail. So we see that we can have competing things that we would like. The whole point of that is um, there are things we want, and then there are things that we want more, right? And the things that we want more overrule the things we want. I want to lose weight and be healthy. I also want to eat, you know, chocolate and and stuff, (laughs) all the stuff, right? So we got to make a decision. Which one do we want more? Do we want to eat all the stuff or do we want to lose weight, right? So we understand that concept. With God, this could be one of two things. Now, I know this is hard, so I know you got to zone in and think with me, but we're we're able to. We hadn't had to go to work. We've had too much to eat. We're probably sleepy. Okay, so maybe it's not the best time to think, but zone in and try to think with me. One of the possibilities is that God sees the free will of man as a greater good than the salvation of all men. Now, that's a reasonable and logical possibility. As a matter of fact, it's probably the majority report in this room right now. I will contend that the reason it is the majority opinion, though, is that it's human intuition rather than Scripture. And I'll show you why in a minute. The second answer is the one I believe is correct. And that is that God sees greater value in displaying the full range of His glory in both grace and mercy and in justice. 
God could have displayed only his wrath and power and righteous judgment. He could have done that by when any creature sinned at any point in history, he could have immediately brought the hammer down on that sinner and put them in hell, right? He could have just displayed his, his wonderful righteous judgment and his wrath and his power, and that would have brought glory to him. Or he could have displayed only his love and forgiveness and mercy. In other words, when everybody sinned and rebelled, he could have said, well, I'm just going to forgive everybody and put on display my love and my forgiveness. God chose to do what brings him the most glory, and that is displaying all of these attributes. The only reason that I'm persuaded that the second option is correct is that it is the one I believe is overwhelmingly supported by Scripture. Now, we're going to look at this in Romans 9, 9 through 24, where Paul specifically answers the question that is before us today, which is, why are some people saved and some people are not saved? So read with me here, Romans 9, starting in verse 9. And you can start in verse 1 when you get home and see that clearly nothing is taken out of context. But I had to pick a starting point and I didn't want to read the whole chapter to you. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue... Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. All right, so let's look at this. It says in verse 11 that though they were not born yet and had done nothing either good or bad... He's talking about Jacob and Esau, right? So he goes to the trouble of saying, look, it's not based on their works because this was decided before they were born and they hadn't done anything yet. Now, I know some folks would say, well, I understand that. But what if God was looking at their future works? Okay, so yeah, they hadn't done anything yet. But what about what they were going to do? Maybe God looked ahead and saw what they were going to do and therefore justified one of them. Well, verse 11 goes on to say, in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. So we see that even if it were based on future works, well, he goes ahead and explains that that's not correct. He says it's not based on works. She was told the younger, the older will serve the younger. And then he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now, Paul was a brilliant um, arguer, okay? People used to study the book of Romans in law school to see how Paul would get ready for an objection that was coming, answer that objection before you ever thought to raise it, and then explain himself. So when Paul gets done with this, he goes, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So he's saying, now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this isn't fair. So is there injustice? No, absolutely not. Now let me explain this for a second. Now, I can't do better than Paul, but just for, to make sure we understand. When we are judged by God, we get one of two outcomes. You are either given mercy 
or you are given justice. No one is ever given injustice. All right? So if you come to God and you say, I want to be judged on the merits and the work of Jesus Christ, he will judge you on those merits and you will receive mercy. If you say, I want to be judged on my own merits, then you will receive perfect justice. Never has anyone received injustice from God. Verse 15 says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. All right, now verse 16 will explain it if you're confused by now. It says, So then it depends whether you receive mercy or grace. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Oh, that's, that's hard, isn't it? He raised up Pharaoh so that his glory would be proclaimed in all the earth. He knew that, you know... <laughs> Pharaoh was going to rebel against him and God was going to use that rebellion and encourage that rebellion so that he could glorify himself through stomping out Pharaoh. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You'll say to me then, see here goes Paul again. He's like, I know what you're going to say. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man? To answer back to God. Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of one lump, out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And here's the crux of the matter. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. All right, I bring this up for two reasons, neither of which is to tick you off. <laughs> okay? um, sometimes this doctrine makes people really mad, okay? And it makes them mad at the person saying the doctrine, which is weird because I just read what Paul said, right? Some people get really upset about this, but it's not, it's not our job to like or dislike what the Bible says. It's our job to understand what the Bible says, obey what the Bible says, and then teach what the Bible says. So, again, two reasons for me to bring this up, neither of which is to tick anybody off. The reason I'm dealing with this concept is that I don't want you to misunderstand 1 Timothy chapter 2. There are two possible misunderstandings that we could take away from 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I don't want you to take either one of them away. The first is, I don't want you to think that God's will has been thwarted because that would leave you with an incorrect and very low view of God that is totally unacceptable. Nobody can overrule the will of God in any area ever. He is sovereign. The second thing is, I don't want you to fall into the heretical view of universalism. There are, uh, gosh, there are even well-known evangelists that preach faithfully for years and then end up kind of in the universalist camp where they just really believe that God is going to save everybody. 
That is not what Scripture teaches, and we need to know that. Uh, if, I mean, I'll, that'd be great if it was the plan, right? <laughs> um, we, could, we could get together and worship, but we wouldn't need to evangelize. We wouldn't need to pray for people to be saved. We wouldn't need to confront people with the gospel. It's not true, though. Universalism is, is a heresy. It is not correct. And I don't want us to see either one of those come out of this chapter. What we should get from 1 Timothy chapter 2 is that God loves Jews and Gentiles of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that he will be most glorified through his merciful salvation of the saved and through his righteous and perfect judgment of the lost. And that will bring him the most glory. All right, the first motivation for us to pray for all people is that God desires their salvation. And somehow, I don't know how, but somehow he uses the prayers of his people to affect the salvation of other people. Now guys, if you want to know exactly how God uses prayer, you've got to talk to somebody smarter than I am. But I know that he does because he commands us to pray. And somehow in God's sovereign working of things, he uses the prayers of the saints to accomplish his will. His will is going to be done, period, but the means through which his will is done somehow is the prayer of the saints. So we are to pray for all people. The worship of God is both the motivation and the goal of praying for others. Look again with me at verse 5 and 6 in 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So God deserves the worship of all people because he is the one creator God. God made all people and then through Abraham and his descendants, he blessed all people and gave all people the opportunity to come to him. God getting glory is a motivator for us to pray for those of us who love the Lord. You know, we love God and we want God to get glory and so we pray for the salvation of people in part so that God will receive more glory. God getting glory is a motivator for us to pray, but God's glory and worship are also the goal of our prayers. As more people become reconciled to God and begin to serve him, there'll be greater worship given to him. And that is a great thing for human goodness and human flourishing for sure. But God deserves the perfect worship of all people. And so the more people that are his, the more people that are saved, the more people will be giving God that worship that he so richly deserves. We should pray for, and you know me, and work for that end, right? Now let's talk for a moment about why God deserves worldwide worship. The man, Christ Jesus, is the mediator between God and man. Jesus was the only and perfectly suited candidate for that job. He was fully God and fully man. Who could possibly be a more perfect mediator between God and man than the man Jesus Christ? God deserves our praise because of who he is. You know that God is very different from us. Very different. God is created. I mean, we are created. God is creator. That is a huge category difference, right? Um, God has life within him. We are utterly and totally dependent on the life that comes from God. He is eternal. Our life is described as a vapor, right? But in Christ, 
He knows our affirmities. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. God also deserves our praise because of what he did, not only because who he is, but what he did. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus gave himself a ransom for all. As we noted earlier, God's will has never been thwarted and never will be thwarted. So Jesus chose to die for you. He chose to sacrifice himself on your behalf. He deserves our love, our faithfulness, and our worship. So after we contemplate this stuff, after we see the greatness of God in these verses, the application is kind of obvious, but it's given to us in verse 7. Preach or share the gospel. And you may say, well, Steve, that's, that's the end you get from everything. <laughs> All right, but let's see what Paul says right here. Paul says, for this, because of this, for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, we haven't been appointed as apostles, but we have been appointed as ambassadors. We are to take the message of reconciliation to those around us. Remember, there is one and only one mediator between God and man. You know, Job knew this was a need. We talked about Job earlier. When Job, things were going wrong for that man, as wrong as they can go for any man. And so Job was beaten. He lost everything. He was in bad health. This guy had it going on big time suffering and he said something is wrong something's wrong and I need to talk to God if I could just talk to God we could straighten this thing out but I can't talk to him he's God and I'm man and we need to work something out here let me read in Job 9 32 and 33 what he said he said for he is not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come to trial together There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. Job knew that we needed an arbiter that could lay his hand on God and lay his hand on men. You have a mediator who gave himself as a sacrifice on your behalf. If you want peace with God, you may have it. If you want reconciliation with God, you may have it. So we said earlier that God will display his glory in you either as a vessel of wrath or as a vessel of mercy. Now we talked earlier about, hey, how's the, can the clay say to the potter, you made me funky and wrong and, and you should have done better? No, he can't. We can't. God is sovereign. God does what he wants to do. But let me tell you the flip side of that. The flip side of that is if you want to be a vessel of mercy, you can choose that now. Let me tell you how you do it. You place your faith in Christ Jesus and His accomplished work on the cross and His resurrection for you. His life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. And you repent of your sins and you can be a vessel of mercy. Now I know there are people who say, well, What if God made me a vessel of wrath? What if I'm not one of the elect? Let me tell you how you can know. 
you can know by repenting and putting your faith in Christ <laughs> that you are one of the elect, that you are a vessel of mercy. So let me tell you, if you've never done that, you need to do it right now because tomorrow's not promised. There are going to be a lot of folks drinking on the 31st and they might run over you. <laughs> okay, You need to know before you leave that you are going to display God's mercy rather than his wrath when he judges you. Folks, this is hard to think through. This is complicated. So thank you for bearing with me, those who did. Um, If you have questions about any of this stuff, I would be more than happy to discuss it with you. But read, read what the Bible says. Read Romans 9. And then read the glorious passages of Scripture that say you get to choose which one you're going to be. And make the sensible right choice. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you're sovereign. I thank you that you're sovereign and I am not. Lord, in your sovereignty and your mercy, you called me to be yours. Father, you reconciled me. And because you reconciled me, it's my job to bring that message of reconciliation to these folks and to folks that aren't in here. Lord, it's easy for me to talk to these folks because you've reconciled most of them as well. Give us a burden to take that message outside of here to people who don't yet know you, who are not yet reconciled. And Lord, give us the opportunity to share gospel with them. And Father, I pray you'd give us the heart and the desire to do so. I mean, in verse 7, Paul said, For this reason you've appointed me a preacher of the gospel. Lord, for this reason you have appointed us as preachers of the gospel. Lord, I know we think the preacher is the guy that stands up here on Sunday morning and talks for 30 or 35 or 40 minutes. Uh, Lord, we are all called to be your messengers. Father, in this new year, I pray that we would all take that call seriously. Lord, we don't know if we have an hour left to live in this life or 30 years left. We don't know. But help us use every minute for you. In a way that when you return, Father, we won't be embarrassed, we'll be overjoyed. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful and that you would make us faithful to be good servants of yours that can unashamedly uh, be overjoyed at your return or are meeting you when we depart. I love you, Lord, and I thank you for giving us hard stuff to look at, but giving us clear stuff to look at. And I pray that you would teach us that your word is sufficient and perfect. And whether whether we agree with all of it or not depends on what's wrong in us. And Lord, we need to conform to your word rather than trying to conform your word to us. Give us the wisdom to do that, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.